Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. I guess at the at my core, I have a, a just a huge appreciation for respect in for what entrepreneurs do. I, I kind of I, I think about like where would we be as a society without the work of entrepreneurs? Certainly, no Tesla, no Google, <laughs> no iPhone. I mean, like you could go down the list of innovations, but it, and and I guess to some extent, I'm 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 just trying to do a very small part to 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 level the playing field for for entrepreneurs i think welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers elite special operations soldiers startup ceos who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as i can the whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got uh, a great author I've been reading for years, John Warlow. John, thanks for doing this. Hey, Jess, good to be with you. So for for the very minority of people who don't know books like Built to Sell, can you can you give people a little bit of a background on you? Matt, it's, it's really just about building a company that's not dependent on you. So that's what we're all about. I, I, I've been involved in a few startup companies myself. My last one was a quantitative market research business. And I went to try to sell it. I talked to this guy named Perry Miele in Toronto. And he peered over his like, you know, tortoiseshell glasses at me and said, you're in market research, right? And and I said, yeah, you know, like we had built a relatively good sized company. It was, we had clients like Microsoft and Google and five or six million in revenue. Like it was a good company. And I kind of walked into his office thinking, man, this is going to be worth a truckload. And, and, and he says, okay, so who does the research? And I'm like, well, I do some of it. He said, okay, well, who does the selling? I'm like, we're selling these big companies. Of course I'm involved in something selling. And he's like, all right. You got, he peers over his nose at, uh, at me and says, look, there's nothing I can sell here. You don't have a business. You've got a job. It's worthless. And I remember that conversation. It was 20 years ago now. I remember like it was yesterday because to me, he had just hit me in the stomach with this idea that for my company to be valuable, it had to be operated. Like you had to be able to be successful without me operating it. And, and that kind of kicked off a lifelong journey of trying to understand what made a company more valuable. How do I get a business to thrive without me personally? So that's what sort of kicked it off. And I, you know, that business went on. We changed it. I ultimately sold it to a public company and, and uh, that kicked off 
uh, my journey of writing about this topic. Built to Sell was the first book and uh, it's been fun. Well, it's funny how, you know, in the introduction to your new book, you talk, you like apologize to lawyers and M&A people for, <laughs> I'm sorry if this oversimplifies what you spend your entire life on. Yeah. I love your books. You know, even though my time at the front end of a of a team for mergers and acquisitions at Citigroup and being in private equity and buying and selling companies. So I recommend your book all the time because you make it accessible. You cover the real basics. Like they probably should be hiring somebody for the complicated parts anyways. And I, I, I appreciate your book because I can hand it to anybody who's got the kind of intelligence and sense to build a million dollar, multi-million dollar business can take your book and go, oh man, I never saw it that way. <laughs> Typically is the response I hear from friends, clients, people, people I've handed it to. So I feel like wow, you've done like a, a gift to the great. rest of us. Oh man, I, I really appreciate that. I think there's, you know, look, look, I think entrepreneurs are among the most intelligent, street smart people on the planet. They tend to know everything there is to know about their company, their industry. And yet we only get one shot to sell the company. And so unlike the other side, as you know, from being the M&A guy, I mean, it's what you do all day long. You eat the stuff for breakfast, right? So you can talk about the stuff all day long. And so when an entrepreneur goes to sell their company, whether they've been running it for 10 or 20 years, they're, they're bringing a knife to a gunfight. It is a, a David and Goliath battle. You're against someone who does this all day long. And, and so that's, you know, the art of selling your business. I tried to demystify the process a little bit for, entrepreneurs so that at least you've kind of you kind of understand the game some of the tips and tricks that might be used against you and you can kind of have a fighting chance to get a fair deal when you sell yeah you know i again most of my time these days is is either trying to find you know working with great people to find a new deal or or investors for our commercial real estate fund but i still do some of the ceo coaching from our the consulting firm that i own and and our team over there and you know, like there's, I mean, I'll give you the the last person that I gave your book to is a client in the fall who he'd spent a few years building up his tech company and was getting ready to sell it. And he, he'd been referred over and we're, we're going through like what he thinks he's going to get and what the issues are and stuff. And, and he is just so close to the issue and he's spent so much time building his business, but he's never sold. He's never like, he sells his service every day, every week, every year, but he's never sold a company before. And this is, you know, potentially the biggest financial event in his life to date, right? And your book is really instrumental in like getting the process started like, okay, I know what it's worth to you. I know what you'd like out of it. They don't care about that at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Let, and we, we yeah. literally have these back and forth sessions about like, okay, put on the other hat. What are they buying? What, what is the, you know, like my oversimplification, I feel like this is the same thing for selling investments as selling businesses is how much money am I going to get? How fast am I going to get it? How much do I believe I'm going to get that money? Like how reliable, right? Right. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, success story, he got 7 million bucks for it and only a million awesome. of that was earn out. So he got the rest up front and, and he, you know, just spent a week in Hawaii a uh, week before last celebrating and, and it actually closed. That's fantastic. So anyway. Fantastic. Yeah. It reminds me of the time I walked into, you ever heard of the, the, the program called EMP? It's an EO event, Entrepreneur Master's Program. No, no. 
So, so EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, runs this thing called EMP. It used to have the pretentious name, The Birthing of Giants. <laughs> so I love the name. It's just so aspirational. Anyways, I got to go to this thing 20 years ago as a student. I was a young entrepreneur at the time, and I kind of went. And we got to hear all these awesome entrepreneurs, Jack Stack, talking about like a stake in the outcome, employee ownership. We had Pat Lynchoni talk about you know, dysfunctions of a team. And then this guy named Steve Watkins comes in. I remember it to this day. He was a guy I'd never heard of. And yet he walked in and he had just sold a company. And I, I almost didn't go to the session because I was sort of a little bit tired of the, the kind of rags to riches story. It was, you know, I was just sort of done with that. And, and he said, look, how many of you guys, there were 60 of us in the room as an amphitheater style seating at, at MIT, their executive education center. And he said, how many of you guys are involved in selling your product or service? And like your buddy with the $7 million company, like all of us put our hands in the air, right? Like the little kids at, at, uh, in grade four were like, you know, pick me, pick me. And, and all of us were proud of the fact that we sold our product and service. And then he took a pull of his water and he put his water bottle down. And he said, all right, guys, put your hands down. You've got all the right skills. You're selling the wrong product. You got to hire salespeople to sell your product. You got to turn those same skills to selling your company. You're going to make a few hundred or a few thousand when you sell your product, but you're going to make millions when you sell your company. And I've always remembered that. It was, it was like being given a glimpse into like a professional game that you've been playing as an amateur. It was just completely another level. But the kind of main point I think he was driving home or the one that I took away is that we've got the right skills. It's just that we're not always thinking about selling the company. And I think that's, that's always stuck with me as, as a really memorable insight. You know, sure, you get tons of attention for Built to Sell, but I love the automatic customer. I've got to tell you, your, your second book, to me, it gets to the heart of like true entrepreneurship and, and fully distancing yourself from being self-employed. And like, mm. I think about like this conversation, I mean, so uh, good friend. So I took the uh, non-traditional route to investment banking. I'm an art school dropout. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like that's a weird one. Yeah. yeah. So I got headhunted over and it was mostly just because I could talk to entrepreneurs. So like, oh, this, you know, I had to go through these extra interviews because they didn't have an MBA. Right. But they're like, oh, this kid's a salesman. He can probably, and he's an entrepreneur. He can probably talk entrepreneurs into letting us sell their company and charge these, you know, extraneous fees. So, the, uh, you know, 10 years after, you know, years and years after that, I'm running this fund in Calgary. And my friend from art school calls me back and says like, hey, I'm running this big ad agency. I run the, you know, the Western half of the United States for them. We have all these giant tech companies in the Bay Area. And, and I realized like I'm running the whole business. Like I should just own the business. And my boss has offered to sell me the West Coast office and he wants 2 million bucks for it. And should I pay that? And what do I think? And like very similar to your symbols, we, to your principles, we went through and I just said like, well, let's just think about this like Warren Buffett. Like Warren Buffett says, what is the current price I'm paying for a future income stream? And and so I said like, what is the income stream they're selling you? And how how guaranteed is that? Like, you know, you, you can just quit and start from scratch. So what, what is the, you know, why go into $2 million of debt to get this? And they were really him and, you know, I don't like to do too much name calling, but him and his corporate lawyer basically were just trying to bully her into it and, and demean her and make her think she couldn't do it otherwise and these kind of things. And so when she, when she walked in and she knew, she knew some of the questions to answer, to ask, and they're saying, well, there's no, you know, there's, you know, we're not, we're not insure, We're not saying there's any real income stream. Anything could change tomorrow. We're not going to guarantee you that. And, 
and not realizing not realizing they're like digging themselves a hole by by responding this way and she ultimately was able to feel really confident in starting her own thing when she recognized like she's not keeping his brand name she she gets a client roster but she knows those people anyways and you know like we we started going through these things and to her credit she has built a multi-million dollar agency with with the, some of the largest tech companies in the world as clients. And, and and so it makes me think on the other side of like me as a business owner, any of my friends I'm advising, it's like, what is this future income stream? Like you, you keep telling me about the exit you want and the charity work you want to do someday or, or the other, you know, you want to do like an Elon, build some Elon Musk crazy business, but have a huge nest egg in case it doesn't work. Like what is this future income stream? And between the membership economy by Robbie Baxter, who I'm really excited also agreed to be on the show recently. Oh, great. Yeah, and, great. And the automatic customer, I'm like, okay, you got to get two books. <laughs> these two books, <laughs> you, you need to like, you need to read these and internalize them because this, this is what you're going to get. Anyways, I'm doing a poor job of it. Can you explain the automatic customer to people and fill in, like give them the real story instead of my version? <laughs> No, it's a great story. I mean, you're absolutely right. When an acquirer buys a business, they are, they, you know, every entrepreneurs want to want to talk about, oh, we got this great location and we got this great product. We won these great awards. We got these employees. None of that means anything to an acquirer. The only thing an acquirer will ever buy is your future stream of profit. I shouldn't say all acquirers, financial acquirers. That's what they're buying. They're buying your future stream of profit. And the way to make your business more valuable in their eyes is to make it more guaranteed, that future stream of profitable, as reliable as you can make it. And one of the best ways to do that is through recurring revenue, right? And when I say recurring revenue, most people think, oh, you're talking about like a SaaS company. And while, yes, I do think, obviously, SaaS companies are based on recurring revenue model. There's lots of businesses out there that have recurring revenue. And, and that, I think, is, is one of the secrets to making your business much more valuable in the eyes of an acquirer. Right now, I just saw this stat. When we look at security companies, they've got like the guys who do wire up your home or your office and they call the fire department if there's a fire, whatever. Those guys have two forms of revenue. They've got installation revenue where they charge you to come in and set up the system. And then they've got that juicy monitoring revenue, right? Where you pay them 20, 30, 40 bucks a month and they monitor your system. An acquirer today will pay about 75 cents for every dollar of installation revenue and about $2 for every dollar of monitoring revenue. Said another way, the, the recurring revenue in that case is three times more valuable than the installation revenue. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for some tail to your revenue. Because again, if we, if we go back to Built to Sell, the whole kind of premise behind that book is, is you've got to get your business to run without you. Well, that's kind of got two components to it. The first is operational. Behind the scenes, you've got to get it working so that you're not pulling all the strings. The other, though, is kind of front end, is, is how do you get the selling, the sales to work without you? Most entrepreneurs, and I dare say your friend probably falls into this camp, is like the rainmaker for their business, right? They're the chief salesperson. They're the best advocate for their company. And as long as you're that, you can still sell your business, but it's going to be on an earnout when effectively you're giving up all sorts of control. You're getting a little money up front and you're not as well as your friend did, spending a lot of time trying to get your value out of the business. That happens when you're the rainmaker for your company. And if you can get yourself out of that job by creating recurring revenue, effectively making sales happen without you, that's where you, you start to see uh, really disproportionately high multiples. This is kind of why 
you know, security companies trade at that kind of multiple, why SaaS companies trade it at, at crazy multiples, because they've got recurring revenue. I've got to tell you, like you had a big influence on the business my partners and I are starting. We are oh, not great. doing, we're not doing a closed end real estate fund where you buy it, ramp it up, sell it and start over. We are doing an open-ended fund where like the idea is like permanent capital. We're raising money and like people have a redemption, right? They have the ability to get in and out, right? But we never have to sell our buildings and start over. And if we do sell our buildings, we get to recycle that capital into the other one. And mm -hmm. this idea of like, you know, people subscribing to their apartment is the, is the subscription we're selling. Right. right? <laughs> like contracted, it's contracted recurring revenue. Right. And it's so good. Very, you know, it's so good. I think there's a lot of industries going that way. It, no, I was just going to, I was going to kind of riff on the, what you're doing in commercial real estate. I love it. A lot of businesses are going that way. One I heard about recently is the car wash industry. So when we think of traditional car washes, it's like the location is the most important thing, right? You got a good busy street corner. The problem of course with car washes is on like a beautiful sunny day in May, everyone wants to get their car washed on a rainy November afternoon. Nobody wants to get their car washed. And so the business is really, really lumpy. And more recently, a couple of guys came along. In fact, Mr. Car Wash is a much bigger co company now and introduced an all-you-can-eat subscription model for car washes, right? You pay a monthly fee and you get car washes. And you might say like, why would you ever do that? Because you're going to, you know, some Uber driver is going to you know, go through 20 times in a month. First of all, that doesn't happen. People have better things to do with their time. This is a car wash. But second of all, you do it because it gives you that predictable revenue. Yeah, you get the revenue in May, but you also get it in November, right? And, and that allows you to plan your business, create what you're doing in commercial real estate, this kind of automatic or sustained recurring revenue. So I just, I just love it being applied to anybody could build a SaaS company and make recurring revenue. That's kind of a no brainer, but I love it when you, when I hear you know stories like yours and others that are based on these, these industries that aren't usually kind of based on recurring revenue. Well, again, private equity, real estate is in general, it's a buy it. You don't make as much to begin with, or you don't make anything to begin with if you're developing and then eventually you start getting some cash. And then we all get rich in the end when we sell it. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. and yet like these aging baby boomers who want to actually be able to quit their job and have an income or, you know, quite frankly, a bunch of my like wealthy entrepreneur friends who have a little bit of anxiety of like, what if I don't get the exit I want? Or what if something happens? Like they want this alternative income stream. That's like, they don't want to do any work. They just want to cash the check. They want like, they don't even want to manage the managers. Right. And right. Yeah. You know, if, if I can become, you know, if we can pursue extremely cash flow centric opportunities, you know, assisted living where Medicaid pays every month, no matter what, you know what I mean? Like these type of things. And you tell everybody up front, like, we're not planning on ever selling. Like, this is just income for the rest of your life kind of thing. If you, you know, I, we're hoping to be, you can pass this income stream onto your kids' kids, right? Well, you can see if I ever did want to exit that and my management fees are based on permanent capital on forever money, you know, that's probably more valuable than, and our fund doesn't, you know, and we're going to have this money for at least six more years until the fund ends, you know, right? It's awesome. Yeah. No, um, I love it. I love it. So, one of my favorite things, and I feel like yours, yours is my favorite book I've ever come across for lateral thinking, for people becoming a little more open-minded of how can we, how can we invent recurring revenue if our industry doesn't come by it naturally? I feel like you, you push people, you have so many examples, you stretch people to think of like, 
it does. It's not always called recurring revenue. You know, these yeah. people call it this. These people call it this. Here's how this person did it here. Can, can you talk about that just for a minute of like how people who are going like, yeah, but that's not the way my industry works. How can they stretch their brains a bit? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And that that is one of the most common misconceptions people think about. Again, they think of media companies, they think of SaaS companies, and they're like, I'm I'm a retailer. Like, I, I don't I don't get this whole recurring revenue thing. I, I mean, I'll give you an example, and I think it it serves to to illustrate the point. There's a company called H Bloom, which is in the business of selling flowers. And if you know anything about selling flowers, it's a crappy business, right? You got Mother's Day, Valentine's Day is when we all buy flowers, and nobody buys flowers any other day of the year, practically. And it's super difficult because the inventory, you cut it off the vine and it starts to die, right? Typical flower store in America will throw it more than half of its inventory every single month because it's dead in the fridge. You can't sell it. It's rotten. And these two guys, Sanyu Panda and Brian Burkhart came along and said, okay, we're going to sell flowers, but we're going to do it differently. And they looked at all the people who buy flowers, Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, graduation, you know, all the, you know, all the people who buy flowers. And they found this little segment. It was people like higher end four and five star hotels. And they buy flowers because every two weeks they've got to replenish the flowers they put on their reception table. They want to look prestigious and like a boutique hotel and therefore they want to have flowers. And they realized these guys have a recurring need for flowers. And so they bundled up what they do into a subscription for flowers. And today, the average lifetime value of an H. Bloom subscriber is more than $4,000. Contrast that with the average transaction that you and I, you know, when we forget our wedding anniversary, we will run in, buy a dozen roses for a hundred bucks. It's a huge game changer, right? Like if you've got $4,000 of lifetime value, you can hire salespeople to call in hotels. You've got an incredible amount of revenue that you can, you can, you can guarantee effectively. It also allows you to buy the right number of flowers because you don't guess anymore, right? You only buy the flowers for whom you have subscribers. So the average breakage or spoilage rate at H. Bloom is less than 2% a month compared to 50% a month in a regular flower store. And I think here's the trick, regardless of what industry you're in, this goes to the, the essence of your question, like how do I, how do I stretch my mind into this, into, into this way of thinking? The trick is to not try to create a recurring revenue stream for all of your company, all of your customers. That's one of the biggest mistakes. H. Bloom didn't say, we're going to buy it. We're going to sell a subscription to flowers for anybody who wants one. They, they first segmented their customers, right? And they did it by buying trigger. What causes people to buy flowers? And they realized that people who buy them for weddings do it for one reason, and people who buy it for Mother's Day do it for a different reason. And hotels do it for a third and entirely different reason. And so that's the secret. I think you, you, you want to get a whiteboard out or a blank piece of paper and just write down all the different segments and types of buyers you have for your, your, your company. And then look at what are the reoccurring buying patterns for each of the customer segments. And I, and I draw the distinction between recurring, which is like a subscription predictable recurring versus reoccurring like the rash you get that reoccurs, which you're not sure when you're going to get it, that's reoccurring revenue. And what you're trying to do is, is switch reoccurring revenue into recurring revenue. And again, I think the secret is you start, like H. Bloom did, by segmenting, by buying trigger. That's great. Well, give us a, give us the elevator pitch on the new book. I'm, I'm only the first chapter in, and I, and I already love it. 
<laughs> well, it's kind of you to say. Yeah, I mean, look, I've been doing this podcast called Built to Sell Radio for five years. I'm not as far ahead as you are, but we're, we're getting there. We've done 300 plus interviews with entrepreneurs. And I asked them about their exit, right? Like, what, what was your multiple? What'd you get? How much did you earn out? Like, all that stuff. And I try to get them to talk a little bit about the negotiation dance they had with an acquirer. And what I've come to see is that most of the entrepreneurs I interview, you know, they'll sell in and around the range, the typical range of companies like theirs in their industry. And, and then there are these outliers, right? Where I think people like Stephanie Breedlove, who, who punch well above their weight when it comes to selling. Stephanie, she's in the book. She's in a later chapter, but you'll, you'll read about her. She built a company called Breedlove and Associates. They did payroll for parents who had a nanny to pay, right? So you've got a nanny, you want to pay them legitimately. She did that when she first had her kids. She called ADP and they gave her the runaround, like transferred her call like seven different times. She's like, this is a terrible buying experience. And she went home to her husband and said like, you wouldn't believe like how hard it was for me to get our payroll set up for our nanny. And, and they kind of looked at each other and said, well, what if we created a payroll service for parents who have a nanny to pay? Anyway, she built it up. Over 25 years, she goes from zero to $9 million of annual revenue. So this is not like the next Tesla, the next Google. I mean, like this is good, but not spectacular growth. And her kids are 25 and 27. She wants to sell the company. And she looks out in the universe and says, well, who's out there? And care.com is the most obvious strategic acquire. Care has 7 million subscribers. And, and I, have you ever used care, by the way, Jess? Like plug in your, your zip code and it'll give you babysitters in your local market. Okay. And they're all five-star rated by parents. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool model. Anyways, they've got 7 million parents who are subscribers to care.com, all of whom need to pay their babysitter. And so Breedlove's like, holy, wait a minute, you had seven. On her 9 million in revenue, she's got 10,000 customers. And so she goes to them and says, look, if 1% of your 7 million subscribers buy my payroll service, that's a company seven times my size. <laughs> right now, what if 2% were to buy? Now it's 14. Anyways, long story short, she gets care.com to pay $54 million for a $9 million company. Like That's it's, awesome. it, it's just ridiculous. Like it, it, it is, it is ridiculous. It makes no sense when you think about it from the outside. But, but what I learned from, from Stephanie is this, that there is like this sort of playbook. Some of these entrepreneurs use again, to punch above their weight. One of the things she did is she did the math for care and just basically did the models and said, this business is worth a whole lot more in your hands than it is in mine. And so I, I wanted to, I guess, a long-winded way of answering your question, I wanted to try to codify what the, the savviest entrepreneurs do, provide a bit of a playbook or a, a hymn sheet or a recipe card for other entrepreneurs to follow, to kind of punch above their weight when it comes to selling. Well, what I appreciate about it, just from what I know of it so far is, you know, like, like this buddy client in the fall, right, who is helping with his tech company. I'm telling him, hey, re you really need to focus on those chapters at the end of Built to Sell so you can start thinking through the kind of games they might play and you can start thinking through the things that are going to be disappointing for you and the stuff, you know, like you need to get mentally prepared for this process. And so now having this whole book of like, here's to actually do the negotiation. Here's like the, here's coaching through the transaction itself, not just the kind of company that'll be attractive and, and, gen and like generalities about the transaction. Like those specifics I think are going to be very helpful to somebody who's going through it right now. And uh, I'm, I'm predicting it'll become a, another classic in the trio here. Well, I hope so. <laughs>
Well, tell me this. You have become very successful in a space that people were already, you, you didn't invent mergers and acquisitions. You didn't invent entrepreneurs selling companies. And yet you have you become successful. You've become a high profile expert in the space, high visibility guy who gets asked to give speeches and interviews and all these kind of things. When you think about appealing to that wealthy entrepreneur customer, what do you think you've done that maybe others haven't? What, what do you attribute some of this success to? Oh man. Uh, well, that's very generous of you. First of all, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, I guess at the, at my core, I have a, a, just a huge appreciation for respect in, for what entrepreneurs do. I, I kind of, I, I think about like, where would we be as a society without the work of entrepreneurs? Certainly no Tesla, no Google, <laughs> no iPhone. I mean, like you could go down the list of innovations, but it, and, and I guess to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to do a very small part to 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 level the playing field for for entrepreneurs. I think many times they get taken advantage of when they go to sell their company and and there's a, a corporate development guy or uh, you know a private equity partner on the other side of the negotiation table and and they prey on the relative naivete of of owners. And I mean, one of the worst tricks in the book is retrading. Retrading, as you know, is, is it happens when, you know, a private equity group will, will kind of woo you into signing a no shop clause and a, and a letter of intent, which is kind of technical lingo, but it basically means that you can't negotiate with another buyer. Once you give up, when you sign a no shop clause and a letter of intent, you're basically giving up your negotiation leverage. And that's when the shenanigans start, right? The, the corporate development person or the private equity company oftentimes manufactures BS reasons to lower the value of your company. And, and they do it because they can, because you've signed a no shop and you've emotionally you know, started to kind of move on with your life. And, and they show up two days before closing and say, oh, you know, we were going to you know, buy your business for X and now we're thinking X minus 20 and you've got nothing uh, but a leg to stand on. So it, I think those are, I mean, there's dozens of those sorts of tricks and crap that, that we try to teach people how to defend themselves against. But that's just like one of, of the most egregious. And I, I guess I feel like on some level, uh, we're, trying to, we're trying to level the playing field and make sure that people, entrepreneurs who don't do this stuff every day, get a leg to stand on. One, one of the best tricks I heard was a guy I interviewed on Built to Sell Radio named Barry Hinckley. And he had been screwed over by this retrading kind of gambit before. And so he taught me something called the retrading, no retrading handshake. And I'm like, all right, I'll bite. What is the no retrading handshake? And he's like, here's what you do. You go through the negotiation, you get one acquired, play off the other, and you kind of gin up the price as best you can. And then once you finally get the final price that you possibly can get for your business, you go and you meet with the the other side of the table effectively the buyer and you you stretch out your hand and you say i will do this deal on one condition and i'm like okay Barry what's the condition and and he says you say i will do this deal but there's no retrading and and just using the words retrading communicates to the buyer that you're a sophisticated seller, that you understand the game and that you're not going to stand for it. And I've always remembered the no retrading handshake. I think it's a brilliant little subtle, but I think important tactic to get entrepreneurs, you know, uh, to make entrepreneurs look and, 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 and present with a sense of confidence that they kind of know the game. I love it. 
Well, thinking about this, though, I, I want to go a little deeper because, you know, I, I read books from other M&A professionals and they they don't have the success that you have. Like there's other people that believe the same things you believe and haven't been able to get the message out. They haven't been able to break through the noise. They haven't been able to get the attention. And I mean, my my guess is part of it is you're so good at telling the stories that draw people in so that they can see themselves in. You're you're not full of like technical jargon. You're you're mm. highly relatable. Any any other things that you think, you know, have added to why you coming to that message has worked so well compared to other people who have messages that might sound somewhat similar? That's interesting. I you know, I probably first of all, I'm not an MA professional. So I, I don't come at it from the bias of like I, you know, I can help you sell your company. That's not what I do for a living. So maybe, maybe that. I also wouldn't have the smarts to to be an MA professional. Like I went to university for communications and I left early. So I'm, you know, like I'm not the guy you want selling your company. <laughs> Where, where was that? Did you grow up in Toronto, or where? where I, yeah, I went to a, a I went to a university called Queens, which is in a little town called Kingston, halfway between Toronto yeah, yeah. and Montreal. But but maybe because I don't have the technical knowledge, I don't have the technical you know the chops. I I, I just don't have that experience or expertise that I tried to to make it relatable because I, you know, I know as an entrepreneur that uh, I need to understand the essence, but I don't need to know the details. Like I need to know the broad strokes, but I don't want to get into the weeds of like how you do a DCF calculation. I can't even say it. A DCF calculation. Like I don't, I don't need the details. I need to know that my business is going to be more valuable if the revenue is more uh, uh, reliable. That's kind of what I need. And, and so maybe there's an element of, of just a lack of technical expertise myself that, that, I, that comes through in, in, in what I do. It is interesting to me, as I observe, you know, there are so many times that it is an outsider who makes the big waves in an industry. It's not the guy who does the same thing as the other guy's 10% better, you know? Mm. Like, in some ways, you know, you think about this Leonardo da Vinci quote attributed to him, at least, of uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Hmm. And and this idea of like by not being mired down in it in a discounted cash flow discounted cash flow calculation, how you are actually speaking the language of your actual customer instead of hmm. the expert. You know, like like I know how to make a lot of money. I don't know how to do my own taxes. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Right. I want to know. I want to know what questions to ask when I'm hiring the the person for my taxes. I want to know what kind of subjects to ask them about to make sure that they know, hey, does this kind of write-off apply to us? These kind of things, right? I want to talk to my tax lawyers about like, okay, do we need to do a feeder fund in the Caymans for this, for all the non-American investors who don't want to pay American taxes and stuff like that? But I don't actually have to know which forms need to get filed with the Cayman Islands and you know how we actually do this correctly so it's not money laundering. I just need to know that my guys know how to do that, right? Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's been one of I your advantages. Maybe, maybe ignorance. <laughs> I, I think there's, it, it's a really interesting point. It's somewhat philosophical, but you know, for the last 20 years, we have been, you know, really focused as a society on technical skills, right? Like every mom used to want her son to grow up as a doctor or a lawyer, right? And about 20 years ago, that changed. Now they all want them to be programmers, right? Oh, like you become a, like an IT STEM, re, you know, you got to be a STEM graduate to, you know, you got to get into Carnegie Mellon for, you know, 
computer. Pro- and look, I, I, I don't want to suggest for a second that those skills are not valid or important. They are clearly. And we're in a world where technology is going to define much of what we do. However, I still believe there is going to be a, a large and perhaps growing opportunity for people to be the interpreters, to stand between the customer and the technologist, to try to pull out the salient points, the points the customers need to know, because the deeper you get into the STEM, the more difficult it is to actually communicate what you know. And that's why I think some of the amazing technologists, uh, Elon Musk comes to mind, the fact that that he can still know and can communicate his point of view reasonably well. I mean, that's when you, you see these incredible entrepreneurial jobs at, at Apple before he passed was, was a great example of that, right? A calligraphy major. I mean, not someone who had a deep technical skill set, but could play the role of interpreter and sort of middleman, if you will. So I think those skills uh, are going to be in demand, even as we become more driven by technology to society. You know, it's funny, you, you call it ignorance, but to me, it's it's actually a deeper intelligence to focus on the few things that really matter and let them know they need professionals for all the tiny details that are less likely to have the major impact, you know? And I do think about like, you know, how many how many top entrepreneurs are like C students and dropouts and but <laughs> right. but yet they have like valedictorians working for them, right? But mm-hmm. you know, the valedictorians can often judge you according to their playbook and the fact that you aren't good at standardized testing or these you know like you know, not everybody's a fact finder, hardcore researcher, right? And they can't recall all these things off the top of their heads. And so the implication is you must not be as smart as me because you can't mes- memorize facts like I can. And and yet somebody like you who can say, wow, there's like 1500 facts there. Let me tell you about the four that really matter. Right. <laughs> right. Let me tell you about yeah. the four that are the overwhelming impact for what's going on here and that you should take complete control of. And, and how to pick the people to do the other 1,496 of them. Yeah, no, I think this is such a good point. And I think our physical limitations, quote unquote, uh, I'm not very good at math as an example. It would be a, a good example of a, of, a, of a limitation. Richard Branson, not to put me in the same category for a second as him, but he's obviously you know known as, a, as someone who struggled with dyslexia for, for many, many years and still does to this day, but he's found a way to make it his an advantage, right? Because with dyslexia, you can't read and you've got to, as well or as fast, so you've got to find ways to communicate and so forth. There's obviously a ton of research out there on the correlation between ADHD and entrepreneurship for a lot of the same, you know, the same reasons. One that I love, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, I've never been able to statistically sort of bear this out, but I think there is a relationship between height and entrepreneurship. And, the, and, 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 and when I look at the entrepreneurs that many of them that I know, they tend to be a little shorter than their counterparts at Fortune 500 companies. And I think what happens is when you rock up as a six foot four college quarterback, captain of the high school team, top salesman or woman, and, 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 and show up in a company, the room parts, the C parts, people want to hear from you. Everybody defers to you in the room and you end up being a manager in a big company because you carry that sort of crown and that influence in a room. 
And so if you think about, and I did a little bit of anecdotal research for an article I wrote years ago, which actually quanti somewhat quantified this, many of the CEOs in America uh, are tend to be tall, tend to be over six foot tall. Yet you look at some of the entrepreneurs you know, and not always, but in many cases, they tend to be shorter because they've had to fight for the attention of an audience. They don't walk into a room at a cocktail party and they're not always the most deferred to person. So they have to look for creative ways to get the attention of the room. They learn that from a young age and over time they become entrepreneurial. That's why many more are second and third born than first born. Again, because they've had to fight for attention. So I, again, I think I, I'll just now ask you know, over the next year, Jess, go like, Come to think about the entrepreneurs you know and you meet, and you're like, this guy's five foot eight. No wonder he's a success. <laughs> I love it. Well, listen, people want to get their own copies of the books besides Amazon or my preference, audible.com. Tell them, tell them the best places to connect with you. Well, I think go to builttosell.com and we put together some free gifts. There's a little button that says free gifts. And you can get a, a white paper, sort of a checklist for the nine subscription models. I put together some videos on the drivers of company value. There's a workbook that accompanies the the book, The Art of Selling Your Business. So it's all it's all free and it's just at uh, builttosell.com and there's a little button that says free gifts. I love it. Well, thanks for making time for this. Hey, it was fun, Jess. Okay, bye everyone. <laughs> 